Chef. Yes. You're a millennial. Yes. You are also a millennial. This is true. But we are old millennials. We're like right on the cusp. We're the old ones who remember a time when there was no social media. And I personally, a lot of the times when I hear the word millennial, want to like tear my own ears off <laughs> rather than hear what people have to say about it <laughs> because it's always so negative. You know, millennials are entitled. We expect everything for nothing. We just want to sit around. And I do not know where that comes from because I feel like a lot of the times that is the furthest thing from the truth. And so I felt very inspired talking to our bird this week, Anne, who is a champion for millennial women, especially despite being the fact that she is not a millennial herself. She is an older person. I don't know if I could say her age, but she is not a millennial. Gen X, right? Gen X, I think. But she is a champion for millennial women and prides herself on living millennially and talks a lot about the positive parts that have come out of this, which I think we find a lot with Bird, which is collaboration and community with other women. Uh, it's about, um, instead of competition, working with other people and sharing knowledge and trying to free ourselves from the nine to five and the traditional ways of doing things that just because they're traditional doesn't mean it's the right way or that we should be doing them. Yeah. I think it's interesting, especially the people that I know, and maybe it is because they are older that I don't know anyone who's sitting around doing nothing. I I know people who are doing like three or four things of their life and they're have a full-time job and then they work here and then they have their passion and you know so I mean I can't speak for the younger millennials if it's not something that I have very much like experience with but I also think that the previous generation would probably have the same negative comments on them too like I feel like every generation there are negative comments and it, it, because we are experiencing this generation and the what people say about it, it's really weird to like see yourself in that context and be like, well, what does that mean for me? And like, how do I fit into this? And totally. When you're sort of labeled in this way, in the same way I do label, you know, whatever the one is after us, I'm like, oh, they're just Snapchatting all the time. Yeah. But <laughs> I know that is probably not true. No, we're becoming those old people. We are those old people now. My day, my my phone had the snake game on it. <laughs> that was a simpler time. Yeah. A simpler time. Uh, so this week's bird is super interesting. She's just written a book. She was the editor in chief at Seventeen Magazine for many years. That's a huge deal. Seriously, like I loved that magazine. Also, this is your debut. My debut podcast. Yeah, episode for Bird. So enjoy Coming listening from New York City to my dulcet tones. <laughs> So I moved to New York from the suburbs of Philadelphia um, to go to NYU. So I was um, I was 18 years old, 17 years old, maybe just turned 18. Um, what I remember so vividly in the months before I decided to go to NYU, I went to go visit 
college campuses all up and down the Northeast, right? We, we went to Syracuse and to Ithaca to see Cornell. And when I came to New York City, I knew instantly this is where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there in Washington Square Park just watching people go by. And like I felt the energy and I felt excited and I knew that that was where I had great possibility to become the woman that I wanted to be. Right. And I didn't even know who that wo- woman was that I wanted to be. I just knew that there was great possibility there. And I didn't feel that anywhere else, right? Bo- Boston is lovely, um, but I hadn't felt, I didn't feel energy there. I went to Cornell and at the campus is the most beautiful rolling green hills. And I thought, what am I gonna do here? Like just- What am I gonna do with all these hills? Yeah, (laughs) like I just thought it would be so boring. So I loved New York City and Washington Square Park at the time, it was 1990 um, and Washington Square Park was edgy and not particularly clean and people were trying to sell you drugs all the time. But I thought that was fantastic. And when you finally moved and made the move and went to NYU, did it reaffirm that feeling that you had made the right decision? I was instantly overwhelmed, right? There's so much to do. You're in living alone for the first time. Um, NYU is actually like a bit of a soft landing if you're coming to New York for the first time, right? They really do a good job of making sure you get some structure and and um, feel connected to the community and that you're mm-hmm. not just sort of left to your own devices. Although the times when you're left to your own devices, there's a lot of trouble to get into. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I like to look around the corner at the trouble and then not get too close to it. But I just loved all the crazy people that I met. I loved everybody. I thought everybody everybody had like an amazing, fantastic, fun story. And it was, you know, it was an exciting time to be in New York, the early 90s. And when I graduated, by the time I graduated from NYU, we were actually having a terrible recession, right? And mm. so um, I was in that like get a job, any job stage yeah. of life. But a couple years later, the economy started to right side and we were all of a sudden in the middle of a dot-com boom. And that made New York really fun in my in my mid-20s to be in New York for all of that that was happening. That first job, get a job, any job, was at American Lawyer? So the American Lawyer sounds like a super boring job, and it yeah. was, right? But it was the only job I felt I could get. I felt I'd applied everywhere. I'd done all of these like heart-rending um, human resources interviews, oh. and they're a disaster. And so I got a job at the American Lawyer. The woman who interviewed me was replacing herself. and. I saw a spark in her eye and I said to myself, I am not going to stop talking until I am convinced this woman is going to hire me. And so I did and she did. And it turns out that the American lawyer was actually a fantastic place to have a first journalism job. I didn't know that at the time, but it was Mm. tremendously lucky. It was run by this legendary journalist. It was a room filled with very smart, dedicated, um, experienced reporters. I learned how to be a phenomenal reporter. You know, I learned a skill that I don't think young journalists learn now, which um, I started out as a fact checker. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was my job to check the commas and the ampersands in law firm names, which is so boring. <laughs> but it really taught me the rigors of journalism, the underpinnings and how important it is to, to get it right even the commas and the ampersands, right? If you mm-hmm. get those things right, you can get the big picture stuff right. And 
And if as a fact checker, you screwed something up, your name went in the magazine the next month next to a correction. It would this say- This is the person yeah. that got it wrong. And we're in such a different stage now of journalism that I feel that really gets lost for mm. a lot in a lot of digital journalism and in a lot of magazine journalism. And um, it was a phenomenal education for me. The other cool surprise of my time there was the O.J. Simpson trial happened yes. while I was there. And of course I couldn't have possibly known that was gonna happen. But the company was positioned at the right place at the right time because they owned Court TV. It was this first moment of like multi-platform journalism. They owned an online service for attorneys and uh, newspapers and magazines and they owned Court TV. And they were in a massive campaign to allow cameras in the courtroom and Judge Ito and O.J. Simpson were going to be this really big moment for yeah. courtroom um, reporting and courtroom television. And so that was cool. Like, I, it was a very exciting, it was an exciting time to be there. And who knew that, like, my snoozy, my snoozy fact-checking job would turn into something that was at the center of a big cultural conversation. Yeah, the whole world was watching that. That's amazing. You seem to be throughout your whole career sort of right on, on the cusp or you're in terms of whatever's next. Like even at American Lawyer, they were starting to have TV and change the game. And then, you know, Cosmo Girl and all the things you've done have been right there. I am driven by boredom. My entire career is driven by this fear of being bored, right? I don't want to sit in my office and do things the way they've always been done. I don't want to do the job the way the woman before me did it or the woman before her. I, I want to tread into new territory and figure it out. And so that's what has driven me in my career. I want to pay attention to where the world is going. I want to be a part of the change that's happening in the world. And so, of course, at my first job, I didn't know that was the dawn of multi-platform programming. Right. But I could see that it, there was something interesting happening there. When I went to Cosmo Girl, it was the moment in time where, one, teen magazines were super exciting, and there were a lot of them, right? There was obviously Seventeen, which had been the longtime icon of teen magazines. There was Teen People, L Girl, YM... Uh, Teen Vogue either launched maybe just a couple of months before we did. It was right around the same time Teen Vogue launched. There were a lot. There was a lot happening in that space, and I'm sorry if I've forgotten some Teen magazine. Please forgive me. But it was also a time when everybody was launching something. It was New York City in the '90s, and it was you were either launching a .dot com or you were going to some startup, or everybody was kind of looking over their shoulder at San Francisco, saying what's happening over there in Silicon Valley, and it was this really exciting time to start something. So at the beginning of Cosmo Girl, we were basically four girls in a room over an overheated copy machine putting out a magazine, but we were on a mission, and that's what made it worth it like I spent the night sleeping under my desk I, they, somebody woke me up at three o'clock in the morning to edit copy like it was it was rigorous and at the same time we were a startup for a giant company right we were working for Hearst and so it wasn't as uh, we had a nice safety net right we weren't yeah. we weren't gonna we weren't gonna fall crashing to the ground it was exciting it was cool to like build something brand new from the ground up 
but I was also aware, I was sort of looking around at what's, what was happening in startup culture and I wanted to do it right. Like I would go to the best parties in the night in the late 90s. Every dot com, every tech company was launching something new and big and exciting. And there was a moment where I was like, the bigger the party, the faster the fall. Yes. I went to this one fabulous, amazing party at some loft space on the West Side Highway. Perry Farrell was DJing. There was like, it was packed with everybody who was everybody. I couldn't find a single person who was there to talk about what the product was. And two weeks later, they announced the fall of that company. And I was, and it just, it put a really important point about business into my head about being humble, right? About right. being respectful, about spending your money in a smart way. I mean, yes, you want to make noise, but you don't want your noise to be that you had a fabulous party. You want your noise to be that you have a fabulous product. Yeah. Put in the work behind the scenes correct. with the product. Correct. Yeah. And you made startup of the year within... Cosmo Girl was named Startup of the Year. Yeah, we were, it was exciting. We were doing great things there. It's amazing. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to go on board as 17's editor-in-chief? I was reading your book. You spoke about some of the reservations you had, but also the excitement of taking that huge step. So I was at Cosmo Girl for seven, eight years, and... I loved that magazine. I felt, you know, I grew it from the ground up. Mm. I, I ran the website. I created their, the, the digital platform for that brand. I ran special projects. I, I did everything for them. And when, when the job came open to be editor-in-chief of Seventeen, I knew that that would be an amazing next step for me, but I wasn't the first one in line. Uh, for that job, in fact, I in fact I know that um, they interviewed maybe forty other people really? before the before they got around to me, and it was a big change, right? I had gone from this scrappy startup that I had built from the ground floor that I had invested seven or eight years of my life, looking at Seventeen, which was the ultimate, the icon, the you know the big queen bee brand. And also to be editor-in-chief, I was at the time the youngest editor-in-chief sort of looking at that current landscape yeah. and thinking about how do I fit into this role and what does that mean and all the ways that you, that you question your ability to achieve when you're faced with something big, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's sort of natural. I think, it, I think it's human nature to say, why me? Can I do this? But I knew that I had a good idea. And I knew that I understood that generation of women and that I knew how to talk to them about the things that mattered because those things mattered to me too. And so I knew it was the right time for me to step into that role and to make a pitch. And, and it was a big deal. It was a big, important, it was a big, important deal. I very often get asked questions now from young women who are being thrown into management positions for the first time. Mm -hmm nervous? How do I manage people who are my age or who've been my peers? Or how do I manage people who are older than me? And the, the advice that I learned and that I give now is to be real and authentic and not suddenly step into some artificial role of what it means to be the boss. 
but to be clear about your vision and to be clear about what you expect from other people and don't change your mind. Don't <laughs> right? change your mind. Okay. Because it's really unnerving to, it's okay. I think it's okay to say, I don't know exactly what I want to see here, but let's work it out together. Mm -hmm. But it's really unnerving to your team if you say, I want X and they deliver X. And then they, and then you say, mm, I don't know. I think I want Y. Right. And then you send them spinning and it's the fastest way to lose the respect and loyalty of your team. And so I think it's a, it's a muscle you have to learn how to flex, which is to be confident in your decision-making and how you communicate a message to your team. But when you came on to 17. I mean, it was a like big you shift. That. Yes, yeah. it was a big shift to go from being number two at a magazine where it was my job to execute my boss's vision mm -hmm. to be the person who had the vision and to figure out how was I going to get a team around me to execute and to help help that vision grow, right? right? To fill in, the, to color in the lines. I It was a big lesson. I remember that moment when I became aware, oh, they want me to lead. Right? They want me to be confident and to say, this is what I want and this is how I see it. And to, and to with respect, right? To say, mm. come into the conversation with me. I want to hear what you say. You're here because you are, you're, you're not just here um, to do the thing I say. You're here because you're brilliant and smart and I, and I have phenomenal respect for your talents. But to set a really clear vision and to set really clear goals. When you first came on to 17, that vision, I read where you spoke about young women and the fact that the future was no longer a given with the financial times that so well when I first things arrived were changing yeah so when I first arrived at 17 it was 2007 and 2007 was the year of Lauren Conrad and it everybody wanted to be blonde and tan and drive their Mercedes SUV through Southern California with the wind blowing in your hair and to go shopping <laughs> with your friends and eat big salads and drink iced tea and then go drink champagne at Ledoux. And it was, you know, that was the year that we were having in 2007. It was a year of conspicuous affluence. Mm. You know, it was the year that there was Lindsay Lohan and Paris Hilton and Jessica Simpson with her LV Mirakami bag and her little multi-poo daisy. Yeah. And it was a, it was a really different time. It was very different, right? It was, it, you think back to those days of, um, of obvious affluence and it's really we're not there anymore it's really hard to imagine so very quickly fast forward two years we had two years of great boom and then terrible recession mm. and the and my audience was insulated for a minute right at their team they were teenagers and it but that as soon as their parents started to lose their jobs or to find that the you know the three cars in the driveway disappeared the family vacations disappeared maybe college wasn't such a given anymore yes the future that these young women had been promised felt really far. And rather than let the rug be pulled out from underneath them, this was a generation of young women who took control of their destiny. And I could see it from where I was sitting at 17 because in one year I got dozens of requests to give speeches about how to get started in business. I started to get tons of emails and messages saying, um, what do I need to do now in high school? What do I need to do in college? How am I going to get started now? And that was a really sudden shift. Like yeah. we, like young women hadn't been that 
focused on their future. They just assumed, you know, the in, before this moment, they had just assumed they would be successful. And here, all of a sudden, they were getting mobilized to make that sex, success a reality. And we pivoted the magazine around this idea. Um, we launched a money column to talk about how to make money, how to think about money, how to think about success. A couple of years later, we started to talk about girl power, which is the way to talk about, which is our way of talking about power and success and influence when you're a young woman. What does it mean? How does this generation think about success differently than previous generations? And it was really dramatically different. This is a generation that couldn't care less about having it all. Mm -hmm. They want to create success on their own terms and what their life will look like. And this is millennials. These are millennials. These yeah. are, and so right, they grew up with me. And so now this generation is in their 20s and 30s. And they, they don't want to sit still and wait to get promoted. They feel confident in their ability to get off the beaten path and to craft a job that works for them. They're working on crafting relationships that work for them on their own terms. They really feel this great sense of adventure. They want freedom, freedom from the office, freedom from the old rules. They want access. The old idea, that dusty old Sex in the City idea of the Manolo as the ultimate, yeah. as the ultimate status, status symbol. symbol. MacBook Air. That's what they want now. Yes. They want to be free. The MacBook Air is like a symbol that you are free to work wherever, whenever, on your own terms. I suppose you could say you did that for yourself. If you could talk a little bit about once you left Seventeen to the time when you wrote The Big Life, worked in magazines for so long and you're still in media. How did you come to really understand that you could be such a champion for millennial women and that would be what you would be doing moving forward? So in 2014, 17, the magazine was slashed in half. The staff was slashed mm. in half. It was tucked up under Cosmopolitan. And that's when I left the magazine. But I knew that I still had something to say to this generation of women. And I wanted to continue the conversation with the women who grew up with me into the next phase of their life. We had spent all of this time sort of fanning the first flames of their dreams of who they could be at 17. And I didn't, I never understood why when you're 20 years old and your subscription to 17 runs out, do those conversations end, right? Do you yeah. stop talking about all of the complicated emotions around wanting something so big, so badly? And you know, the stakes are higher when you're in your 20s. The decisions that you're making matter more. Not every, not everything is a permanent, fatal decision, do or die, but, the, but it matters more. You're moving towards becoming the person that you want to be. Mm -hmm. And so when I first started thinking about writing a book, I was like, well, I know lots of things. I was the editor of Seventeen. I say things all the time. Yeah. I, <laughs> let me just write them down in a book. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. There's some things I don't know. Like, I don't know. I, we didn't talk about sex and relationships, grown-up sex and relationships at 17. Let me have of some course. women over yeah. for dinner, and we'll talk about sex and relationships, and, I, and then I'll be able to write the book. And so I had a dinner, um, six or eight women around my dining room table, and we started talking about sex and relationships for about five minutes. And then the conversation got so much deeper and richer than I ever thought it could be. We talked about ambition and, and 
the risks you have to take and sabotaging coworkers and toxic bosses and this phenomenal pressure to be perfect that these young women were feeling. And after that first dinner, I really felt like my brain was on fire. And I went downstairs and said to my husband, like, oh my God, I have to do this again. This was amazing. And so I did. And so over the course of two years of writing the book, I had dozens of dinners at my kitchen table, same formula, six or eight women around my table, fancy frozen pizza, many bottles of rosé, killer cheese cheese plate. (laughs) And the dinners became so meaningful to me, right? The conversation was richer and stronger and more powerful than I had ever imagined it could be. And the women were so candid with me. Many of the women who came and sat around my table became sort of characters in the book. And that was important to me because it was a big shift. Instead of the advice in the book being like how to, it was me too. It was about creating a sisterhood of women who were sharing their stories to help other women achieve and succeed. And it's not about, it very quickly became clear to me, this was not about me giving the advice that I could so easily rattle off, right? Right. This was about the sisterhood. It was about the stories. It was about the other women. I was there to give perspective and to pull the threads together, but these women's stories were the stories that matter. And the reason their stories are in there is because I want everyone to be able to see themselves reflected in those other women. I think there's someone in there for everyone. Mm. There are bits and pieces. And the... and. It's a really, it has become a really powerful sisterhood. I call the dinners the badass babes dinners because those women are badass babes, right? They are, yeah. they're the kind of women that you want to have in your orbit. They are strong, competent, dynamic, and rich, and everybody has their badass babes. Everybody has their sisterhood around them. How did you find these women? So when I first started, I would meet an interesting woman and I would say, you are interesting. That's an amazing story. Fine. Let's, you invite a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend. And that's how it would come together. As the dinners evolved, there were certain certain women I wanted to talk to that I would seek out. I would say, um, I want to talk to women who are side hustling, right? They have a main job, but they've got something cooking on the side. I wanted to talk to a table of attorneys because one of the things that's so true about millennials is they want to be free from the hierarchy and the rigid rules of work. And yet here are women who are in corporate law, young women right. in corporate law, who can't be free from the rules of the way work works. They're in a super lockstep system. Um, I wanted to hear how they navigate around that pressure. I talked to some young moms. I call them the rock star moms because they were they had amazing jobs. They were all and all had toddlers or brand new babies at home. And what was amazing about them is how purposeful they were in planning their families and their careers at the same time. It was not a random walk for them. Right. And so that's how the dinners evolved, right? That that Actually, the dinners took on a life of their own. And I've done, since the book launched, I've probably done another dozen dinners for women across the country. Um, I've also launched a platform for women to host their own dinners. And so thousands of women across the country have hosted their own dinners. And occasionally I Skype in to their dinners. (laughs) And they're eating pizza and drinking wine and having the conversations that I had around my dining room table. They're having those conversations with their sisterhood. It's a really powerful movement that's been sparked yeah that seems to be a big thing with millennials i think is that seeking out of 
other women or other mill it's it's trying to source your information from others and to learn from others rather than going a traditional path but i do think it's interesting when you speak to people in the more traditional jobs and who are also millennials and how they fit into that speaking of lawyers or doctors like you know what is you don't hear about that as much well i'll tell you this we are all so connected all the time, right? Everybody's reading the same stuff on Facebook and liking the same photos on yeah. Instagram. And we're so deeply connected all the time. And yet we are hungry for real life connection with other women who see the world the way we do. Because it is lonely to try to do something really big and different from the traditional path laid out ahead of you and you need a tribe you need your sisterhood around you you need other women who see the world the way you do who can help guide you you know i hear from women all the time i don't have a mentor i don't have role models the advice you know the traditional advice in magazines doesn't feel like it connects with me and then they would say like well crowdsourced you know the crowdsourcing kind of advice also is not super helpful right everybody's in the same slow moving boat and so that's where your squad comes in, right? These are women who know you, who are there to help you achieve and succeed. That's the power of that sisterhood. But you must have got some amazing feedback after the release of this book from women. What is it about you in particular that is able to speak to women and understand them on such a profound way and especially this group of women in particular? When I was at 17, I saw the women who are reading the magazine as my friends. And it's true. Like, I'm, I am not millennial. Right. I mean, I suppose that's, uh, that's what I'm saying is, like, yes. why? But, so, but I, I never wanted to put that distance. You know how people say, oh, that magazine is, like, your cool uh, older sister. Oh, sister. Yeah. I don't want to be the older sister. I want to be the best friend. I wanted to be, we're all in this together, sister. That is the feeling that I engendered at 17. I didn't want there to be distance between me and my readers um, because I am feeling what they're feeling, right? I am going through those emotions. I've been through them. I know, I now know how to deal with them, but I, but I feel for them and I don't want to discount what they're feeling or what they're experiencing. And I, and I took that attitude with me into writing The Big Life. It's not a book about millennial women. It's a book for them. It's about your experiences. And I'm experiencing those things too. I have lived my life as millennially as possible. I get my media through my Facebook links and through my Twitter and through my Instagram. And that's where I'm communicating with my audience. All of a sudden there was a moment where I started getting, about two weeks after they turned it on at Instagram, where I started getting Instagram messages. And I was like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing now. Yeah. Right? We're, do- we're not doing email. This we're not doing t- this. Fine. Instagram messages. And so... I am living my life as millennially as I can. The things that I have learned from the women around my table are the things that I am trying to put to practice in my life. I don't understand the eye rolling and entitlement and and slams against millennials, right? No, it is 100% about fear. When senior executives pull me aside and they say, ugh, millennials, what do you hate most about them? I just (laughs) think that is about fear. I think it's it's about seeing the limits of your own potential and your own possibility in the world when you're faced with someone who is at the beginning of their potential and says to you, 
thank you so much for laying the path out ahead of me. I'm not going to take that path. I'm going to do my own thing. That's that's terrifying, mm. right? When you've spent your entire career paving the way for a generation behind you to come up and they say, no, thank no, you. Yeah. Um, and it happened to me too. The Each of my assistants, my last three or four assistants at 17, you know, that used to be a job where you would get your pick of the of the next best, you know, editorial assignment. Right. They all left and did something else. And because they didn't, you know, they didn't want to follow in my footsteps. They didn't want to they didn't want to follow the path I carved. Um, I think it's phenomenally inspiring. Did it ever upset you the first time it happened or was it always inspiring? Well, the first time it happened, I was like, oh, okay. And then the second time, I was like, what's happening here? <laughs> and by the third and fourth time, I was like, all right, this is a thing. Writing is on the wall, people. Let's yeah. pay attention. Let's pay attention where young women are spending their time and what are they interested in. Mm-hmm. And what do you feel like is next for you? And after now you've released this book. I know you do a lot of um, work with charity or nonprofits with young women and education. Well, Can you maybe talk a little bit about that. I'm on the board of a of a not-for-profit called Grace Outreach, which helps women in the South Bronx get their GED um, so that they can go to college. And the reason that's important to me is because it's this is the big life for all. Those women, whatever decisions or challenges they faced that um, they had to drop out of high school, they are now trying to to live their own version of the big life. And that's why that organization is so important to me. The work I'm focused on now, though, in my regular day job is I'm doing I'm doing a lot of speaking. I'm traveling across the country. If anybody's listening to this who wants to have me come speak, I would be thrilled because there, it gives me phenomenal pleasure to bring this message to young women everywhere. It really, and to not only to young women, to women everywhere, period. Why should we all be more millennial is the, is the subject of my TED Talk this fall. But the truth is that I am embracing the adventure of this new path, this new dynamic that millennial women have set up for how your career goes. I don't know what's next exactly. I'm loving every minute that I get to talk about the book and talk to young women about their possibility. You asked me about the response that I've gotten Mm. from the book and There is nothing more powerful to me than the messages I get from women who say that the book made them feel seen and validated and understood. And that was my goal, to say, I see you, I feel you, let's figure this out together. It's a credit to you, I think, and and to the women who were characters or the, the women who spoke out about their stories in the book I wasn't surprised, but it's, I suppose, brave is the right word. How vulnerable and honest about, I suppose, sort of the, some of the stuff you're like, oh, I do think that, but I have never said it out loud. And that's an important lesson that I've learned in my own life about being transparent and about transparent, being vulnerable yes. and about being honest about not just the perfect Instagram-y all high fives things that happen to you, but about the struggle and the darkness and those moments of self-doubt and the three o'clock in the morning anxiety that's waking you up. And, you know, look, I'm still only posting happy, fun, sunshiny moments on Instagram. Right. But I'm having those three o'clock in the morning anxieties just like everybody else. 
and I feel all of those same what's going to happen next moments. But the embrace the mess message yes. of the book, the the mess is the mojo that's moving you forward. I am walking my own talk, right? I am embracing the mess. I am feeling those moments and looking for looking for the energy that that's creating and enjoying the energy that it creates. The more you try to make everything sort of neat and tidy, mm-hmm. the more you're going to feel confined by that box that you're putting everything in. What is the one big takeaway that you've learned about living millennially? One of the biggest surprises that's also in the underpinnings of the book is the way that millennial women have replaced competition among women with collaboration and the rise of sisterhood as the key to success. Not just, you know, not just your friends, not just your buddies, but that your sisterhood is the key to your success. You know, there's this old dusty idea that um, there was room at the table for one woman and you had to like wait until that woman like fell over and died yeah. <laughs> or like got up and moved on to like get that seat at the table. Yeah. And it's just not true anymore. There's no longer that fear of keeping the information to yourself and not sharing it. You know, one of the pieces of advice I very often give is that when you're feeling competitive with that woman who's sitting next to you or across the hall or like at the other brand that you're like dying over, you have to learn to own your own lane and it's hard when you're just getting started what is my lane where do I what is my talent what can I do but you got to keep your eyes on your own paper and not worry about the competition around you what does New York mean to you you were able to create your big life here everything seems to have started for you once you got here and realized that moment when you were sitting and thinking about the possibilities that New York could offer you After college, I moved into a 350-square-foot, one-room apartment uh, in the East Village with one sink. There was a bathroom, but I had one sink, and so I brushed my teeth next to my dishes um, for 10 years. I lived in that apartment, and I loved it. Man, did I love it. I had a space of my own. It was cool. I could afford it. It was like I decorated. It was I loved every minute of it. I think about where I am now, right? It's been it's been 20 plus years since I've lived in that apartment. Um, and I am not brushing my teeth next to next to my dishes anymore. But the feeling of excitement I had then about possibility, possibility in New York, possibility at work, possibility in my in my personal life is a feeling that I still have now. I do not ever want to be in a place where I'm not looking ahead to what's next with a rather than a sense of anxiety but a sense of possibility.